0: And uh, both of them are really well worthwhile. So uh, that's it for me this week. And uh, let's, uh, let's get back quickly to young DK. Great stuff,
1: Matthew. And so that's it for this week at Film at 11. We'll be back next week with more new movies and old ones from this new year of 2021. So, ten, so until then, Please keep watching the skies and the screens.
2: Kebu supporters for helping us reach our end of the year fundraising goal Kabu only exists because of you our Kabu community so thank you for keeping these airwaves going and supporting volunteer power community supported radio
0: Hi, I'm Brian DeShazer, director of the Pacifica Radio Archives, the oldest and largest collection of public radio programming in the United States. And welcome to From the Vault, our weekly series that takes that history out of the vault and back on the radio. In this edition of From the Vault, we present our earliest known recording of Japanese Americans and their families living in California, talking about life in America. The year was 1959, and KPFA in Berkeley, California, opened its doors and its microphones to welcome the Japanese Americans to tell their stories.
3: I stayed in the first grade about uh, two or three days. Well, at the end of about one month, they put me up to, I think it was fifth grade. When I was about 18, my father uh, went back to Japan. From there on, I couldn't go to school, so I had to quit school and work myself.
0: The Japanese began to immigrate to America by large numbers in the late 1880s through the earliest 20th century. By 1942, there were 127,000 Japanese Americans living in the continental United States, and of those, 112,000 were living on the West Coast. This is the classic example of the American dream, an immigrant group working hard, raising their families, and making an effort to assimilate and make contributions to their new home country. That all changed following the Imperial Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, which brought the United States into World War II full throttle. Soon after that event, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066 on February 19, 1942, authorizing the internment of all the 112,000 Japanese living on the West Coast. This extraordinary act of wartime hysteria and racism would only be officially acknowledged when President Ronald Reagan signed the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, which provided $20,000 to surviving detainees and their heirs totaling $1.6 billion. But now we turn to our extraordinary recording of Japanese Americans and their families from 1959 talking about family life before the war and how the internment process changed their lives forever. This program was produced by Marshall Windmiller from Pacifica Station KPFA 94.1 in Berkeley, California. You will hear from ordinary citizens, teachers, students, lawyers, architects, and farmers but you'll also hear from Hito Akato, one of the founders and past presidents of the oldest and largest Asian civil rights group. It was called Japanese America Citizens League and it was founded in 1929. We're proud to present Marshall Windmiller's program, Japanese in California, from 1959. Pacifica Foundation presents The Japanese in California, one of a series of
4: programs dealing with racial minorities produced by KPFA Berkeley, under a grant from the Columbia Foundation.
5: There are only about 160,000 Japanese in the United States, and most of them live on the West Coast. They refer to themselves as the Issei, Nisei, and Sansei. That is the first, second, and third generations. The Issei began coming to America in the 1890s, but their numbers were greatly limited by legislation designed to keep out Orientals. Only their children, born in this country, are citizens. The program you are about to hear makes no attempt to exhaust the subject or to recite all the facts of history. It is rather a verbal montage of the characteristics of a group and an attempt to convey something of the feeling of what it is like to be a Japanese in California.
3: I dreamed about America uh, quite a bit from my father. And uh, I sure wanted to come over here and see what kind of a country (laughs) it is.
5: Led by that dream, this Issei came, as we or our ancestors all came to America to face the day-to-day facts of existence on foreign soil. Each of the many voices you will hear speaks not only for an individual, but for countless others like him, sharers of the dream, participants in the events. Who can say how much the dream helped to create the reality?
3: Well, when I first came, there wasn't uh, very many Japanese boys to go to school. And, uh... Most of the people were all men, no women folks, you know, and, uh, well, everywhere you go, uh, you didn't see, uh, you just see a man, a Japanese, uh, no families or uh, no, no of their own house to live in. So the first thing, uh, when I came over here, I had to stay with uh, friends. Couple of years after I came over here, uh, women started to come in. I stayed in the first grade about uh, two or three days. So the second grade, third grade, uh, well, at the end of about one month, they put me up to, I think it was fifth grade. Well I stayed in, uh, in the American family, I stayed in as a schoolboy and uh, of course I studied uh, pretty hard there and I was, of course I was old, too old to be uh, with <laughs> the first, second or third uh-huh. grade, you see, I think that was the reason that uh-huh. uh, they put me up in a upper grade. My father was working, and only way uh, I could, I had to work and help him too. Uh, so I had to go in as a houseboy. Uh, when I was about uh, eighteen, my father uh, went back to Japan. And uh, from there on, I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't go to school, so I had to quit school and work myself.
6: Later in Stockton, there was a uh, hub in the downtown area, which uh, would be comparable to the uh, what they call Japanese town in San Francisco, and. Uh, My father was, uh, he built the, I think he was the first uh, Japanese, uh, well, immigrant to build the, build his own home in Stockton. And in so doing, we moved, uh, well, more or less to the outskirts of town. It was still what you would consider the wrong side of the tracks, but it was uh, an area in which he was able to... uh, uh, well, obtain a lot and build a home. The neighborhood was, uh, well, as I recall now, was predominantly an Italian uh, neighborhood, and uh, they didn't seem to mind. Then uh, many Japanese families moved into the area, and uh, I grew up in a neighborhood that was, uh, oh, within a four or five block radius, I imagine there must have been 20 Japanese families and the rest of the families were probably of Italian uh, origin.
7: You know, it's just something that you know that you're different and that you're somehow not part of the community. And uh, I guess you feel it more in us, you know, in a rural community. My brothers, however, can distinctly remember being stoned and this kind of thing when they are growing up, but uh, it was less open. Um, You led two different lives, I recall. Uh, You went to school with them, and you engaged in all kinds of activity with them in the school. But once you're out of school, then the line was clearly drawn. You never saw each other socially. Uh, It was just very, very clear. And you you left it at school. All this idea of democracy is just forgotten the minute you leave the school.
8: Well, I think in those days I didn't uh... Minded too much. Uh, All the minorities—Negroes, uh, Mexicans, Chinese, and Japanese—were in in a somewhat a segregated, segregated part of town. Uh, the schools weren't segregated, however, and uh, it, it hadn't. Uh, I hadn't given great thought to uh, the human relations in those days. But uh, thinking back on it, I did realize that although I had Caucasian friends. Uh, we never invited them to our home, nor was I invited to theirs. I lived on a farm, truck farm,
9: dirt farm. And uh, I grew up during the Depression. I was a kid during the Depression, a young kid. And the Well, my friends it was it was sort of an intermixed community, and there was Mexicans and we didn't play with too much It was a rural community and neighborhoods were far there was their closest neighbor was another Japanese family about oh maybe three quarters of a mile away and whenever we did play with anyone, we played with them, which was maybe once a month there was Japanese families, say within a radius of three four miles, who sort of had a community of their own, and they were quite a few of them, let's say about half the old men were uh, quite n- nationalistic and they tried to carry on Japanese traditions and ceremonies and so on. They had a Japanese school.
10: Japanese class. We start with uh, uh, a short ceremony with Gassho. Gassho is uh, this um, salutation to the uh, Buddha and also end with Gassho. And the uh, main purpose of this class is uh, uh, to give them um, uh, some religious um, knowledge through a language acquaintance, because uh, many uh, uh, terminologies in uh, Buddhism are mostly untranslated. hard to translate in. Uh, We We could, uh, can't find a, a very adequate or suitable word in the English. So uh, sometimes uh, using uh, original Japanese or original Sanskrit Chinese was more convenient. So in that point, we need uh, we feel the necessity of giving the small children the knowledge of Japanese. So our purpose is to give the religious education as well as. Uh, uh, language knowledge so we call this uh, uh, Buddhist Japanese class. I notice in our church
11: uh, where the uh, minister speaks Japanese a lot of the uh, sanseis can't understand it so the uh, trend is now to obtain English speaking ministers for these uh, Buddhist churches in order that the uh, sanseis will be able to understand
2: I do feel that that uh, language is something that uh, we should maintain in some form or another, at least uh, in terms of talking, maybe not so much reading, but at least talking, which I'm not very good at. And uh, I could get by, but I mean I certainly could learn a lot more than I already know. With the older generation you can get by by speaking half Japanese and half
11: I have many friends who speak Japanese only. I have a friend who uh, was educated in Japan. I have a friend uh, who came from Japan after the war. And I have a a friend uh, who is so-called war brides. There are many people who speak Japanese rather than English. But my association is, i say about fifty. 50. No, but, uh, about uh, seventy uh, English-speaking and uh, thirty Japanese-speaking.
12: All of my children speak English because it's hard for me to teach right now. Uh, if I talk to Japanese and to them, it's all right, but I try to speak English and if I speak Japanese, between this, I don't think too good, so I try to speak English now. And then since um, they're speaking English outside anyway, but um, I like them to learn Japanese. So my oldest boy is going to be six, so I, once in a while I try to teach them, uh, him. He's interesting too, and uh, uh, he copies what I say.
1: I'm not living with my parents now, it's just my wife and my child. And uh, my wife doesn't speak too much, and of course, it's a, it's a chore trying to get my little girl to speak. But I've uh, maintained it through uh, through my parents and through the years that I attended Japanese school in the city. And the people that I, the Issei people that I, am fortunate enough to get in contact with, uh, through them I, I seem to maintain my knowledge of the language.
10: Uh, I don't know if this is bad or good. The Japanese is the uh, number one people who uh, forget about the Japanese language some you see especially compared with the Chinese or um, other uh, Spanish-speaking people uh, they uh, most other people even uh, second or third generation uh, speak very fluent uh, mother language Uh, but uh, this Japanese generation uh, already second generation their knowledge of uh, Japanese are very poor, so very fast to uh, forget. That means uh, <laughs> in one point very bad, but in another point the uh, assimilation is very good, I think. <laughs>
5: In 1941, there were 112,000 Japanese on the Pacific Coast. Two-thirds of them were American citizens. By the end of 1942, they had all been forced to leave their jobs, give up their homes and businesses, and be interned behind barbed wire. They had not been charged with any crime. They had merely had Japanese ancestors. And on December 7th, 1941, the Imperial Japanese Navy had attacked Pearl Harbor and the United States had gone to war with Japan. Playing golf
13: that morning and when I came home, noontime, time I heard about, it. I didn't dream that we would be evacuated. I thought that as American citizens that we would be protected in this way. We thought maybe the alien Japanese would be evacuated but not the citizens. And we felt it was quite discriminatory because the Italians and the Germans were enemies too, and uh, the East Coast was just as vulnerable. There were submarines lurking in that area, but they never moved any of them because they were as strong, uh, and they settled in that that area. They had influence, influence and influential people backing them. And then we, uh, we were here for some time, but then we were evacuated to... Uh, to Tanfaran, the... Uh, the stables of Tanfaran there. Stayed there for some time, and we shipped to uh, Topaz, uh, Utah. Well, I stayed for a while, but I was one of the first to leave and go to Chicago, where we were, more or less in free territory, to live our own lives.
11: Well, I didn't like it because... Uh, why Japanese alone? How about the China, uh, uh, German and Italian? They in, uh, was in the same situation. But because we are, you know, so-called uh, Orientals, and, and flat nose, and uh, funny eyes, uh, we were kicked out of the state. Not because Japan was close to the, you know, Pacific Coast, I don't believe. The German or Italian or any other group could have done the same damage, if they wanted to, for the national security, but they weren't kicked out. I went to a, one of those, you know, uh, assembly centers. I didn't like it, of course. Uh, the first job I had, I had was to go over Idaho to work in a farm. I grabbed a chance, and I went to Idaho, worked in a farm, uh, most during the summertime and autumn, and then uh, wintertime, they didn't have too much work. So uh, I uh, went into uh, one of those uh, <laughs> uh, you know camp. Uh, from there, I uh, uh, volunteered for the army uh, for the of course. Uh, at the uh, Army Language School to become an uh, interpreter, or, you know, or some uh, language, you know, language uh, thing. And then uh, I went overseas, stationed in Guam. and now. Uh, for a little while, I was uh, walking on one of the station, radio station, listening to the uh, you know, Japanese uh, radios, and then the Japanese Army uh, and the Navy, uh, uh, radios and those things. And there's the a chance came, and uh, so be, I was able to volunteer for the uh, flight uh, over or around the Japanese islands. I volunteered for that. I guess I flew close to 100 hours flight time. And then, uh, one day I got, uh, wounded in Iwo Jima. So, after that, I was in the hostel and Then they sent me back to the hospital over here in the state. I got discharged. And as soon after I got discharged, I got the job I got now.
7: A terrible thing, that's the thing that I I felt about it. And I I was working my way through school, and I was staying at the dean's place. And uh, we had an idea that we were going to be moved and the dean would not believe me when I would say we were leaving, that I thought we would have to be moved or something. And I remember the time that... um, Well, it was toward the end of the semester, and the Army posted these things on the... the thing, and that was the first time I found out about it. And I remember running into the dean's office and saying, I have to make arrangements to leave, and the dean would not believe it until and we dragged him out and showed it to him, and then he realized this was this was it. And then there was no time really to think about it because we just had to leave very quickly. And you couldn't, in this small community show any sympathy. and you know, you'd be ostracized. And there was one There was one white boy that went to school with us. He studied Japanese with us. And um, the poor fellow had to leave because he felt sympathetic toward toward us. It was kind of an interesting thing. He's not living anymore, unfortunately. I can remember feeling like I was in a dream world, that all of this wasn't true. I felt like I was in a daze for months, it seemed like. And uh, In a way, we weren't prepared for it, because my folks were prepared for it. They said they would be moved, but they didn't dream for one minute that we would be moved. The children would be moved. And uh, I guess what you call repressing it, because I just, all I remember was, it's kind of a nightmare, and that's the kind of a feeling that I had.
13: In the relocation centers there were some that didn't cooperate and uh, there was a group of the so-called renunciants that uh, renounced their citizenship but they were uh, American citizens many of them but those who had uh, been sent back to Japan when they were young and they had a lot of uh, they, Japanese uh, ideas and uh, they thought uh, this is a very bad thing to do on the a lot of them rebelled and were very bitter I, I think as a group those people were more bitter about it than we were that were born and raised all our lives in this country there were a lot of hotheads in that group and in, in fact a lot of them took to to violence and and uh, there were a lot of uh, for instance uh, officers in the JACL that were beaten up and things of that type uh, when we first went in uh, in the centers uh, there was quite a resentment against the JACL because they they thought that we had sold them down the river into the, uh, into the relocation centers. But I think now that they realize that the JCL did the right thing and they've done a wonderful job since, uh, since the war.
14: We were rather naive. We, didn't, we knew we were American citizens, but nobody else knew that. And we weren't, you know, we didn't realize that. And so what happened was that uh, when, the, uh, when the war came, uh that's exactly the situation in which we found ourselves that certain people who had worked among us church people and uh, other people whom we had befriended in the course of our growing up and our parents had uh, knew us but it was still a rather small minority of people who really knew us and understood us but as far as the general public is concerned they they had no idea that uh, we were Americans, our loyalty was to this country and least of all our own government. And uh, I would say generally, uh, I talk about the Japanese problem on the Pacific Coast, California, but it was a localized problem, you see. In 1940, I think we we slowly began to realize that uh, Uh, what Japan was doing in Manchuria and and, uh, China uh, did reflect upon us and I remember in Los Angeles we set up a Speakers Bureau that was 1940 you see we could see that people identified us with Japan and the people of Japan so we uh, set up a Speakers Bureau going to speak to church groups women's clubs service organizations uh, as many as we could cover, uh, outlining our position that we were Americans, our loyalty was to America, that uh, to us Japan was a foreign country, you see. Um, that was, uh, of course, we realized we are American citizens, and when this talk about evacuating us came up, why, I mean, We didn't take it too seriously at first. We said, well, they couldn't evacuate us. We're American citizens, you see. But it happened. And even today, uh, people ask us, how could that be possible? Because being citizens, you see, we have certain rights. In fact, there was a lot of talk at the time, even when uh, evacuation became quite definite, as to what course we should take whether we should fight for our rights and stay on the west coast or whether we should cooperate with the government in its program of evacuating us from the west coast and i would say that the primary consideration in all this thing as as far as we are concerned is the fact that our parents not being able to become american citizens they were aliens ineligible for citizenship. So overnight, they became enemy aliens, you see, through no fault of their own. We could hardly say, well, we're going to fight to stay here. We're Americans. We don't care what happens to our parents, you see. And that, that was, I think, uh, the biggest factor that helped us determine what our course would be. Of course, there again now, Although we saw it differently, I mean, other people felt that our, our taking all this was almost an admission of, our, uh, of some close relationship with the people of Japan. From our standpoint, we felt that maybe this is our peculiar contribution to America's war effort.
0: You are listening to Japanese in California, a 1959 documentary produced for KPFA by Marshall Windmuller in 1959. If you'd like more information about this documentary or to get the complete recording, give us a call at 1-800-735-0230. Or you can visit us online at fromthevaultradio.org. This program was discovered as part of a grant project we did with the American Archive, funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, highlighting civil rights recordings. As we looked at the civil rights that were addressed by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, we saw a lot of areas that were missed. And in in addition to the African-American civil rights, Latino Chicana civil rights, women's rights, LGBT rights, Japanese-American rights, we also were able to influence and contribute to Idea of disability rights, mental patients' rights, and other rights that have been championed by Pacifica Radio. And now back to the incredible testimonials, Japanese in California, from 1959.
7: The camp that I was in, it wasn't too bad. Partly because I think the administrator was a fairly decent guy. but. Um, it was split into two, the two camps of people who were uh, very, very nationalistic and those who said that they would be in the army if they were called for, and, uh, petty things which went on between families who took these points, on th- uh, different points of view, they wouldn't talk to each other, and, uh... Uh, I think that was the most terrible period, as far as I can remember, the confusion and, and animosity between people that were friends for years, and, and uh, I remember the time my brother volunteered for this language specialty thing, and I lived in a block where there are a lot of people who thought that it was wrong, you know, I, how many times can you turn the other cheek sort of business and uh, they were very, very critical that my brother would do such a thing. The older people, they would come up and they would say very, very insulting things to my mother about the fact that, how could you let your son uh, go into the army? Well, I do remember though at the time that there were um, sons that were disowned by the family for, for having signed the loyalty oath or having joined the army, they were disowned. All of it's forgotten. But at the period, it was a very, very terrible, terrible time. Because I remember some kids that I, I knew in camp at that time, and they were, they were telling me that they thought that my brother was very fortunate to have a family that didn't make it so miserable for him.
1: The only incident that I recall very vividly is uh, where it involved one family. They had four sons. The father, I believe, or well, we didn't make. I suppose it didn't make too much difference to him. But uh, well, the mother, mother of the boys, well, she was definitely pro-Japanese, and. Uh, As it turned out, uh, the whole family uh, uh, was sent back to Japan. And she had that much, uh, she exerted that much pressure on her sons and her husband. And the other incident that I can recall is uh, where it involves a relation of mine. And uh, he volunteered uh, a minute, Pearl Harbor was. broadcast it and it was accepted and while in the service uh, I do recall his uh, we weren't in the same relocation center but I do recall his mother and father telling us later how how they were ostracized because their sons had if had volunteered
8: I think the the treatment of the Japanese during the war was uh, I would say Very miserable. I I think it was inexcusable. Having lived uh, among the Japanese uh, until the time I was in service, uh, I I, I felt that there could be no question uh, as to their loyalty to the country of their adoption, uh, even in in a crisis. Perhaps it was because of uh, the feelings of my mother and father and of my uh, brothers and sisters and of my neighbors, but I felt that uh, when the time came to decide that they would decide for America and not for Japan. This isn't to say that in the negotiation period prior to the war that there wasn't among the older Japanese some feelings for Japan, but I I feel feel sure that uh, when when the crucial decision had to be made between America and Japan that uh, The the decision would have been in favor of America. Prior to Pearl Harbor, there was quite a lot of discussion uh, among the Japanese, especially among the older Japanese, not too much among the younger ones. Uh, I think uh, such discussions would have uh, been in the nature that uh, Japan needed to expand, uh, that America was standing in her way of expansion, that Japan needed food stuff and a place to, and a marketplace for her goods. But I think such talk came because uh, the older Japanese, uh, though they'd been in America quite a long time, weren't quite uh, fully accepted in the American community, and so they had to feel that they belonged to some country. My mother, she had to sell her business at a fantastically low price, uh, store other things, uh, some of which were stolen, uh, and she took only the minimum to the relocation center. I felt that uh, she always looked upon Japan as the land of her birth and a a land to which she must one day go back and visit, but I think uh, because of her children, uh, she felt that her allegiance lay with uh, the United States. Uh, I I don't think that it would be any exaggeration to say that uh, the monetary loss among the Japanese uh, prior to evacuation was very great. In many cases, uh, I I think they lost uh, things which I think uh, cannot be repaid uh, financially. I think uh, emotionally it was a tremendous experience for them. (laughs) I think by now that uh, if the experience hadn't been forgotten, uh, the scars have long healed over. The country uh, to which I belong was entitled to make a mistake. As long as it uh, once righted that mistake in later years, uh, good enough for me.
5: When the war was over, the Japanese could return to their homes and begin to pick up the threads of their lives. Many found new jobs and new places to live. Many had a difficult time readjusting for none of them, would life ever be the same as it was before the war.
14: The worst thing about how it happened was that there it came so sudden the government wasn't equipped to take care of property uh... people had stores, people had crops growing I mean all those kinds of things There just wasn't time to take care of those kinds of things. So there was a tremendous loss in property, personal property. Uh, Although since the war, we did work on an evacuation claims program and the government did pass such a program. And most of the people have uh, been given token compensation for their losses. Uh, The amount uh, was nowhere near what the losses actually were, because uh, If you get uprooted from your home all of a sudden, you don't know exactly what you had in your home, when you bought it, how much it was worth, and all those things are involved, you see. And then when you come to business, things like goodwill, people had to uh, hire non-Japanese to take over their business operations. Uh, When you've been in business for 20 years, uh, what is the worth of goodwill and all those kinds of things which are intangibles, you see then you've been making so much per year your records show it but anticipated profits were were knocked out of the evacuation claims uh
15: bill i'm the editor of the english section of the niche bay times the japanese american daily we lost every piece of our equipment uh, during the war Uh, the company was dissolved and uh we had to scrape up pieces here and there, and <coughs> reorganize completely mechanically and uh, otherwise. It was quite a difficult uh, thing to do at that time because, all uh, well, Japanese type was, as you uh, may figure, it was very scarce, and. Uh, as far as the readership was concerned, we just had to wait until the people all came back. And uh, as a paper, our circulation is much smaller than prior to the war. But
6: as much as uh, 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 you know, just speaking very theoretically, I mean, uh, we felt that our rights were violated and all that sort of thing. But uh, uh, I would say that uh, this evacuation. Uh, for the younger Japanese, uh, did a great deal. Uh, I mean, they killed killed our parents. However, I mean, that's the only thing about it. My father was never a very outspoken person, and uh, he worked hard. He used to have to work 10, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, practically, with his little shop in Stockton. And uh, uh, but all I know is that uh, when he had to sell out his shop and start packing to move. I think his, uh, well, his life just sort of slowed to a crawl. I mean, he had no, no, no reason to exist after that. You know, we were grown up and uh, we didn't depend on him anymore, and uh, I think he just, uh, well, he just felt that there was no longer any reason for him to exist. He worked hard and uh, he was healthy, so there's no reason why he wouldn't have, uh, well, lived to be 70 or so on and so forth. But. Uh, He died about four years
5: ago. If World War II forced the Japanese to leave the Pacific Coast, it also forced thousands of Americans to go to Japan, first as conquerors, later as allies. Many of the Americans liked Japan, and some of them took Japanese brides. A few of these marriages did not work out, and lonely Japanese girls found themselves in a strange land, far from home, needing the services of a lawyer. Probably
4: handled maybe 100 or 150 cases, uh, all told, on the war brides. And, uh, they come from different backgrounds. Um, uh, by and large, most of the cases I've handled for war brides have involved mixed marriages, either be between the war bride and a Caucasian, or uh, the husband is usually ne- uh, either Caucasian or Negro. And uh, Once in a while, I've run into the problems of war brides where they've been married to Nisei or Chinese, but uh, those are very exceptional. And um, most of the problems seem to stem from those families in which uh, the husband is still in the service and there's separation, long periods of separation. Bottomner referred to me because uh, the language problem. I'm uh, well enough versed in Japanese so that I can. Uh, it's much easier for most of the war brides to uh, speak in Japanese, I mean, especially when they're consulting with an attorney. And uh, sometimes there are (coughs) agencies that know that I'm around. Sometimes uh, it's a referral from one war bride to another. And uh, sometimes it's a referral from another attorney who feels that he can't handle the situation because he has a language handicap. I would probably have a somewhat distorted view if I just looked at my files. uh, I might conclude that that these marriages were not on the whole successful. On the other hand, if you look at the uh, statistics on the immigration or the immigration of war brides, uh, Japan has a quota of 185 uh, people who can come over here for permanent residence. Uh, The war brides are non-quota, and uh, on the average, the immigration statistics show that there's been between 4,000 to 5,000 war brides coming into this country uh, annually since about 1950. And I would say that roughly one out of every six person of Japanese ancestry in this country today uh, is a war bride. So that uh, if you weight my experience and possibly I handle the vast majority of the the domestic relations problems of the war brides in this area, uh, I don't think that proportionately that it runs any worse than the population as a whole possibly it runs a better percentage that is a lesser percentage breakup of marriage uh, I've seen some situations where uh, they've had nothing but misery since they've come here but uh, I guess because they have come from a background where uh, they were uh, they had seen much more adversity that the worst situations that they have run into in this country are still better than the situations that they might face if they go back to Japan. And added to that, <coughs> some of them feel that they have to stay here because they've entered into the marriage against parental uh, wishes or uh, and uh, the uh, village where they came from might have frowned upon a mixed marriage and therefore that they would uh, not they would find a hostile home or a hostile community to go back to. In other instances, war brides are more or less orphans to begin with, uh, or they've lost their families, or they've lost contact with their families, or their families are very poor, so that, that uh, the situation in Japan would be much worse. And another factor which uh, makes them uh, probably a little more adaptable to the type of adversity that they might run into here, is the fact that most of the war brides were children uh, during the war, and uh, they never had the kind of easy childhood that uh, uh, most of us feel is ideal, or most of the children probably raised here uh, are accustomed to, so that They went through childhood with uh, many many handicaps and they're not used to i mean they they don't expect that everything is going to be a bed of roses i mean in marriage or otherwise so their outlook is probably a little bit uh, better from the standpoint of adjusting themselves to a foreign country foreign languages foreign customs and uh, a marriage which probably is less than ideal from the type of Dream marriages that we concoct.
12: Uh, it's kind of lonely because since uh, we left uh, my folks, you know, from Japan in a uh, new country. But since I married a uh, uh, Japanese American, my husband is a Nisei, what you call. So um, his friends is all Japanese, and um, his folks are Japanese. So I did not feel much. Uh, left out because everything very familiar to me since food is uh, uh, we can still eat japanese food and uh, land uh, my focus is japanese one thing uh, when i start looking the job and right after i came over uh, that's because um, if i found a job the american my english uh, getting better material, Faster, that's what I decided to uh, work a little bit. Then I went to an agency and all over the looking around a uh, jail, but they asked me about American citizenship first. And so that, that thing is you know, um, almost like I found a job and then now you don't have American citizens, so I can't give you a job. But that thing is, I just Makes me discouraged. Well, that can be helped because I can get my citizenship back at least in three years, so that at that time I didn't have, you know. Otherwise, I really didn't have much bad time.
5: There are many minority groups in America. And most of them have formed associations to protect their rights. The organization of the Japanese is the JACL, the Japanese American Citizens League.
13: Yeah, I was one of the um, founders of the JACL in San Francisco way back, and uh, it was even then it was very hard to get started in those days because. Uh, uh, these were quite pro-Japanese at that time, and they didn't like the idea of us uh, organizing citizens' group. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the first uh, group was organized in in Fresno, and they were they called themselves the uh, American Loyalty League. And Then Seattle had a group called the Progressive Citizens' League, and we were the first ones to to. Uh, to uh, uh, form under the Japanese-American Citizens League. Uh, we've organized that in San Francisco. Saburo Kido who was a big, uh, big man in JCL, and some of us got together and organized the JCL. I served as president two or three times, and uh, we really had a very lowly start. Well, at used say they couldn't join anyhow, but uh, a lot of them uh, tried to prevent their sons and daughters from coming in at that time. Well, a lot of them were bitter, because they, they weren't able to get citizenship, and uh, there was a lot of prejudice. So they felt that uh, as long as we were treated as uh, orphans, why should we be be uh, loyal to this country? But that attitude has changed an awful lot since. This was uh, way back in 20...29 20, or 30, around there. We had a very difficult time getting that thing started. I remember... Keto and I just alternated presidency there for five or six years before we would take home.
16: Well, I was one of these bright little intellectual liberal types, let's put it this way. <laughs> so to actually go out with someone from a minor- minority group was a little different from talking about it with people. And I think all of a sudden I became conscious that maybe we couldn't go here or we couldn't go there. And I had never had to think about this before, you know. And I sort of had the feeling in the back of my mind that I would never really get involved with this man, you know. Very nice guy, I'll talk to him, he'll be a good friend. And I really felt quite sure that this was going to be just a friendship, you know. And I, I think I never spelled it out to myself, but I had a definite feeling that this was a closed off relationship. I think in some ways I felt a lot uh, sharpened up a lot more than I used to be about who I want to know who my friends are. Uh, I'm much more aware of what people think about Negroes, Orientals, mixed marriages. You know, before, since I was one of the big white majority, it didn't matter. You know, you talk to these people all the time. You're, you might disagree with them, but you're one of them, kind of. I think that the only thing that happened since I've been married is this feeling of I'm no longer one of this majority. You know, I'm sort of, I have another loyalty kind of, and I find myself not wanting to know people I might not have even cared about how they thought before. And now I just sort of have a stronger feeling about this. I don't want them for friends. Some funny things have happened with uh, you know, uh, the baby. Just little tiny things, and I don't think that she'll run into any real trouble. At the co-op the other day, somebody looked at Kimi and said, "'Oh, isn't she a polite baby?' (laughs) This kind of thing, you know. But they're going to be pretty kids. You know, I think that all of our kids would be very good-looking kind of kids. And this helps, just to be pretty helps, you know, in this world. You know, so I think some other funny things, like this neighbor down the street kind of thing that happens where because uh, another person and I are in the same group, where they, they identify with me, you know, you're okay. And it gives them an in to look at this curiosity that is our marriage, you know. And this is just a feeling you get from people of this particular kind, you know. This sort of being in the house and, oh, there he is again, you know. <laughs> and looking at you sort of more closely like, uh, yeah. <laughs> if they have a party, it's nice that uh, they can sort of show off their interracial friends or Mm -hmm. something like this, you know.
5: Issei, Nisei, Sansei three generations of Japanese Americans, with the fourth already on its way. Some of them remember the language of their parents. Some of them hold to the ancient religion. But most of them have become much more American than Japanese.
2: I think I could say this, that uh... As far as my work is concerned uh, with the people I work with, co uh, coworkers and uh, clients, that uh, I think it's very easy to forget that I am a Japanese American. I, I, I find myself uh, every once in a while thinking about, my goodness, uh, I'm treated like anybody else and um, I think, well, my God, I, I'm, I'm not really, by racial features and all that, an American, I mean, uh, so-called American. Uh, I'm an Oriental, but uh, it doesn't seem to bother anybody and it doesn't bother me as much as it did a long time ago.
6: I mean, uh, I don't go to the Buddhist church regularly, but uh, I feel that I'm still uh, Buddhist. Uh, I belong to the Buddhist church my mother is uh, in town so uh, uh i speak uh, to her in as much japanese as i can muster and uh, uh, they do have japanese movies and uh, i rarely go but uh, uh, they are available and uh, i don't think there's any strong tie as such and i don't think the japanese community as such exists as it used to as it did in
7: the past. Kind of a peculiar feeling like when I'm with Japanese-Americans, then I feel like I'm thinking like an American. And yet when I'm with uh, the non-Japanese, then I feel like I have to take a certain kind of position and a certain kind of stand because I'm Japanese-American. It's it's kind of a funny, funny feeling. Mm -hmm.
0: And that does it for this week's From the Vault. We'd like to say a special thank you to Addie Gevins for helping us with this series being preserved and represented to the Pacifica Network listeners. We are now streaming and podcasting online at fromthevaultradio.org. Thanks to all the Pacifica Station listeners who joined our summer school campus campaign and sponsored more schools with the From the Vault series. For more information, call the archives at 1-800-735-0233 three zero or visit us online at Pacifica Radio Archives.org. From the Vault is presented as part of the Pacifica Radio Archives Preservation and Access Project, which is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts and past grants from the Grammy Foundation and the American Archive pilot project funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This program was written and produced by Mark Torres and Brian DeShazer. The series is executive produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives and your host, Brian DeShazer. Our theme music is by Kevin Drum Holiday. Thanks for listening.
13: You're listening to KBOO Portland at 90.7 FM and streaming on the web, kboo.fm. I'm Don Jacobson, and moving on, we'll be here in just a few minutes right after the news.